Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 4. The prophet continues on and he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Shall we pray? Father, as we come to this passage of Scripture tonight, what I believe to be the heart of the Gospel, I pray that you, Lord God, would speak to us and speak to our hearts. Instruct us, teach us. But Lord, may we tonight be teachable and grow, Lord God, in the wisdom that you have for us in this passage. May you fill us, anoint us, and bless us with your Holy Spirit that we will have that wisdom and understanding I pray, Father, that nothing will distract us from what you want to say to our hearts tonight. I pray, Father, you use your earthen vessel. But let it be, Lord God, that you be the power and the wonder and the wisdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Lord, we also pray tonight for Peter and Susan and their Children, as they prepare to head back to Jalapa, may you bless them, and especially, Lord, this week as uh, Jordan will be operated on. And being the youngest, Lord, I know they have great concern for him in that. But, Lord, we just pray for you to help and heal and to guide the hands of the doctors that are, that are working on him. And, uh, and even now, Lord God, we know that you're able to heal him. And so we lift him up to you for that. But we pray, Father, that you will just present yourself in a gracious and mighty way in their lives and in their ministry in Mexico when they return. We ask these things for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're continuing our study in what is arguably the most amazing passage in the scriptures, that is Isaiah 53. As we concluded last time in verse 3, we observed that the suffering servant was called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And I mentioned that any person would carry a certain amount of sorrow, knowing that to be despised and rejected meant they, that they were considered the most worthless among men. But I also noted that Jesus himself never felt sorry or or even sorrowed for himself because his sorrow was always for others. But the two words, sorrow and grief, or sorrows I should say, and grief, are very prominent at the onset of our text 
here today. And so there is need to understand the connection between the passages, verse 3 and verse 4 and following, since the prophecy actually takes a turn here in verse 4, in that it begins to unveil the mystery of the suffering described. And so we begin with this verse 4, this grand statement, the beginning of the verse, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now consider that in terms of, of reading that from verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from Him. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The same Hebrew words are used in verse 3. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Sorrows and grief. Here we're told uh, that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But as that man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, we have someone in Jesus the Messiah who understands our pains and our deepest sicknesses. Please understand that that is exactly what I mean. He understands our deepest pains and He understands our deepest sicknesses. And I'm not necessarily just talking about physical illnesses. Most of us know the frustration of trying to share a problem or a concern with someone who just can't relate to what we're talking about. But Jesus understands the pain. Jesus understands the sorrows. Jesus understands the griefs that we bear. That no one else could ever even come close to understanding. But even they themselves have their own things that we could probably not understand as well. I just wish and, and, and hope that, that we would never consider the, the ministry that Jesus has for us as very superficial. I, I would hope that we wouldn't think that it's just on the outside what Jesus wants to bless us with in this life. Because too many people are saying that today. You know, it's just a matter of what you can have and what you can get on this life. Jesus wants to bless you. He wants to give you everything in the world. But you know what? He cares more about that pain inside that nobody else can answer about. He cares more about that. As a matter of fact, He cared so much that He died on the cross for it. But Jesus understands. I know that we've used this passage of Scripture many times, but nonetheless, repetition is one of our greatest teachers. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, and by the way, I'm going to tell you a lot tonight. Maybe, maybe I'll forget, but I'm going to tell you, keep your finger right here. You're probably going to have to use all ten fingers to come back to all the places I want you to come to. But in Hebrews 4, keep your finger there for later on, because we'll come back to it. But in Hebrews 4, verse 15 and verse 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you know that it is telling us here that we can come confidently to the throne of God's grace because of what Christ has done for us, in that He has been able to sympathize or understand our weaknesses. And even though He was tempted in all points, 
He did everything without sin. Never sinned. I don't oftentimes use this particular translation, but I I, I read it today and I thought, this, this really says something here. In Hebrews 4 verse 15 in the New Living Translation, it says, This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. You know, it's simple, but it's, it's direct and to the point. It, it says exactly what it means. This high priest, speaking of Jesus Christ, this high priest of ours, and I, and I want to emphasize that he's, uh, it's translated exactly right. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same temptations we do, yet he did not sin. And so, the Lord understands. And the Lord sees and the Lord knows the deepest hurts and the deepest pains. Getting back to our text, a strong emphasis now is being laid on the contrast between the terms us and or our with the word he. There's a contrast. Notice in the text, even throughout chapter 53, the number of times the pronouns our or we are used in comparison or contrast, as it were, to the pronouns he and him. I want you to notice the contrast here. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgression or transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I emphasized all of that for you to see that contrast. Because this is the heart of the whole passage that began in chapter 52, verse 13, and is carried to the very end of chapter 53. This is the heart of it. And this, in fact, is the presentation of the heart of the gospel message. That the sinless, innocent, and suffering servant should die as the sacrifice for sin. And if there is, if, if there is one word to apply to these three verses, verses 4 through 6, the verses that we're looking at tonight, it is the word substitution. If you're taking notes, you've got to write that word down. Substitution. Consider if you will. Consider if you will. He carries nothing other than our sicknesses and our sorrows. He carries nothing but our sicknesses and our sorrows. You see, the we whose they are is first and foremost Israel. Remember that. It is first and foremost Israel. This is a prophecy given to the children of Israel. It is a prophecy to them about what Messiah is going to come to do on their behalf. It is necessary for them to know that they themselves cannot and never can, never will 
be able to atone for their own sins in any way, shape, or form on their part. So it begins with Israel. The we, whose they are, in other words, the sicknesses and sorrows, are first and foremost Israel. But as is evident from the fulfillment of it, it is not limited to Israel. Hence, it applies to us too. Our infirmities, you see, and our sorrows are those that we deserved. And again, I'm going to make a lot of emphases here about things. Our infirmities and our sorrows are those that we deserved and in part brought upon ourselves. The mention in verse 5 of healing is an implication that Israel, by illustration, is sick. Israel is sick. But the same can be said for us before we came to know Jesus Christ. Because we were born in sin. And sin is the greatest sickness there could be upon man. And now it's interesting that these sicknesses, these infirmities and these sorrows, and by the way, that's what that word griefs is translated as in the Hebrew. To mean sicknesses and infirmities. And the word sorrows, of course, is just that, sorrows. So it's interesting that these sicknesses, infirmities, and sorrows include actual real sicknesses and illnesses and physical maladies, but they're not restricted to them. Please understand, they're not restricted to them. Turn to Matthew chapter 8. We're told in verses 16 and 17, and actually you can read much of what is before this to see the whole picture, but we're told in in Matthew 8 verse 16, when evening had come, they brought to Jesus many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Did you notice that? He healed all who were sick. That it might be fulfilled, notice, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. He took our infirmities. He has borne our griefs, infirmities, and bore our sicknesses, our sorrows. And it would be well to say that these categories, sicknesses and sorrows, embrace all human suffering. These words and, 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 and these categories embrace all human suffering. For the suffering servant to, uh, you know, for the suffering servant to bear or to take up or to carry this suffering means that Christ bore it vicariously. This is a big, you know, 50 cent word. But he bore it vicariously as someone who took a heavy load off someone else's shoulders and carried it for him. That is what it means to do something vicariously. It is a someone who took a heavy load and, and took it off of someone else's shoulders and carried it for him. A good way of understanding this is, is that Jesus bore our sins on the cross. Uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. By the way, we'll come back to this. Another finger in there. As you're, as you're keeping 
score. First Peter 2, verse 24 says, Who himself, speaking of Jesus, who himself bore our sins. You see that emphasis on our again? He bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. By whose stripes you are healed. But that isn't all, you see. It isn't that He just bore our sins on the cross, took upon Himself, carried our sorrows and our sicknesses. It isn't all, because He also identified with the consequences of Adam's sin when He ministered to needy people as He did in the previous Matthew passage. He identified with the consequences of Adam's sin. What were the consequences? Well, that we weren't perfect anymore, and that our bodies were decaying, and that our bodies were, were subject to all of the things that this cursed world could ever give to it. And yet Jesus had the power. Of course He had the power. He was God the Son, but He had not only the power, but the desire to heal. And it's interesting that Matthew says this is a fulfillment of this prophecy in verse 4. How interesting. And while that passage applies Isaiah 53 verse 4 to Jesus' healing ministry and not to His atoning death, please understand this. That is just to remind us that every blessing that we have in our Christian walk does come to us because of the cross. Every blessing that we have in our Christian life, in our Christian walk, comes to us because of the cross. But, rather than misinterpret the understanding of the verse to mean, as some teach, that healing is in the atonement, and that all believers have the right to be healed, it is best to remember something. It is best to remember that the prophecy was fulfilled during the Lord's life, and not at His death. The healing he was doing before he went to the cross. You see, some will apply it just to the atonement and say, well, you see, Jesus died, so you can, you know, no, you no longer have to be sick. Well, you see, he was healing before he went to the cross. So this doesn't in any way, by the way, this doesn't in any way, shape, or form take away the fact for me or for any of us here, that the Lord still heals today. The Lord still heals. Because there are those who will argue, well, the Lord doesn't heal like He did before. No, yeah, He does. Many of us are testimonies of the fact that the Lord heals today. But do you understand how we don't want to misinterpret the Scripture here? And there's still other things to come up, which is the last statement by His stripes, or not the last statement, but one of the last statements here, by His stripes we are healed, which we'll deal with when we get there. So surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The next phrase there in verse 4 says, Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And as a result of the substitutionary and vicarious deeds that the suffering servant did for Israel, and by the way, I don't want to have to keep saying this, but of course the suffering servant is Jesus, as a result of the substitutionary and vicarious deeds that the suffering servant did for Israel, her contemptuous behavior, speaking of Israel, her contemptuous behavior toward Messiah now stands out more harshly. It stands out more clearly. 
And so for that reason, you see, the prophet returns to Israel's behavior. He returns to their behavior when he says, Yet we considered him, notice, stricken by God, smitten by God, afflicted by God. That is really the whole emphasis of the passage. We considered him, we judged him, stricken by God, smitten by God, afflicted by God. Now, the Hebrew word for stricken here suggests the person that is hit violently by the hand of God. Stricken by God. The word smitten, to be punished by beating. So they considered him stricken by the very hand of God, smitten or punished by beating, and then the word afflicted here means to be humiliated, hurt, and weakened. Humiliated, hurt, and weakened. So the whole thought then is that they considered him stricken in the face by the hand of God, smitten by the punishment that came upon him in the beatings that came upon his body and afflicted and that all that took place because of it was this humiliation and this hurt and this weakness that came upon his, his whole life. And the idea in this phrase is that the people would make a judgment. You see, that is when it, the word esteemed. Yet we esteemed him stricken or yet we considered him stricken or yet we we judged him stricken so so the phrase is that the people would make a judgment against him they would make a judgment against him deciding that he was being punished by god for his sins when in fact he was being punished by god for our sins so that phrase is important to understand here We esteemed him stricken. In other words, we considered that he was being stricken because he was the bad guy here. Because he was the sinner. Because he deserved these things. I mean, this was the mindset of the Sanhedrin when they condemned Jesus to death. Think about it. You can look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 65. Matthew 26, verse 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes saying, He has spoken what? Blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He is deserving of death, you see. That's how they saw it. He is deserving of death. And then they spat in his face and they beat him. Ah! You see, God needed a little help in beating this criminal. They beat him. Look at the next phrase. And others struck him with the palms of their hands. Where do you think? On the face. And they said, prophesy to us, Christ, who's the one who struck you? As if God needed help to punish this blasphemer. In the mind of the Jews, only a guilty man, in the mind of the Jews, only a guilty man, a criminal, would be so humiliated. As Jesus died on the cross, the crowd assumed he was being smitten by God. Well, you know what? He was. But not for himself. Not for himself. When you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verses 22 and 23, 
Here's another reason why they considered him smitten by God. Because the law said if a man has committed a sin, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. So here he was on what? On a tree, pretty much. They would just hang that crossbeam on that tree. And so in their minds they saw Deuteronomy 21. This man is accursed of God. Smitten by God. Afflicted by God. But Paul said in Galatians 3.13... Christ has redeemed who? Us. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Referring back to to the law. Jesus took our place. That tree was ours. That tree was our punishment. And He has redeemed us. He bought us back from the curse of the law. It was for us. It was for you. It was for me. And this is the doctrine of substitution. This is the doctrine of substitution. And all of this is followed by what is considered to be one of the most important verses of the Bible. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. This is the glue that holds it all together. This is the glue that brings it all together and holds it together for us. This verse explains the very reason why Christ Jesus came and died. And again, here's the irony. Even though the people thought He deserved to be put to death, the fact was that when He was killed, He would be wounded for the sins of the people and not for His own sins, being that He never sinned at all. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul says, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. For He made Him who knew no sin. I'd mark that in your Bible. That's substitution. That's what He did for us. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. I told you to keep your finger in Hebrews 4 verse 15. It comes back to that again. Uh, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet. How? Without sin. Without sin. Jesus never sinned. He was always perfect. First John chapter 3, verse 5. 
John writes, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Really, the only way that anyone can take the sins of the whole world is that he himself has to be empty of all sin. And Jesus was. Full of God's spirit, full of God's wisdom, full of God's mercies, full of God's grace, but empty of sin. Except on that day when he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And he was wounded for our transgressions. And he was bruised for our iniquities. Let's look at that first phrase, but he was wounded for our transgressions in verse 5. The Hebrew word for wounded, halal, is rich with meaning. It literally means this. To pierce fatally, to bore through in a profane manner. Uh, that's what I mean by a rich word. <laughs> to pierce fatally, to bore through in a profane manner. You know, some, somehow we, we might say that in, in this world today there are some sins that aren't so profane and others that are. But in God's eyes, God who is perfect, every sin is profane. Think about that. It's every sin that pierced Christ. It's every sin that bore through him in a profane manner. The word speaks primarily of, of bodily wounds and not just some sort of mental anguish. So we're, we're talking about you know, what came upon the body of Jesus. Because there are those who would say that, you know, when he was wounded for our transgressions, it was, it was some sort of, of uh, mental anguish, you know. Uh, some would have us to believe that. No. It speaks directly to a bodily wound. Or wounds, as it were. And halal is an, is an appropriate word to uh, describe the one whose hands, feet, and side were pierced. Psalm 22, verse 16. David prophesies. For, God, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. The, they pierced my hands and my feet. This is prophecy of what they did to Jesus. They pierced my hands and feet. Now in Luke chapter 24, verses 39 and 40, after Jesus has risen from the dead and he appears to his disciples, what does he say to them? Behold, my hands and my feet. That it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. We know he spoke directly to Thomas, didn't he? And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. In another gospel he speaks to Thomas, but here he's telling them all, look. Look at who it is. They pierced me. Just as David said. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on him whom they pierced. This is Old Testament. This is prophecy of the second coming of Jesus Christ 
when he comes again upon the Mount of Olives, when they see him coming, they're going to see him whom they pierced. And he goes on to say, yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Well, in one sense, they esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, as if he deserved it. They were the ones who deserved it. And now when they see him who was pierced, they will grieve and they will mourn. For they will see the piercings. That had been prophesied to them, but they didn't see it. His side was pierced by a spear, we're told in John 19, verses 33 and 34, when they were finally bringing those men who were on the cross with Jesus and Jesus himself uh, to speed up their death. But, you know, it says when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. He pierced his side, his side, his hands, his feet. This, this may sound obvious to you, but please bear with me as I say it. It, it is important to note that Jesus was crucified, which was not a Jewish form of execution. It was not a Jewish form of execution. Capital punishment for the Jews meant stoning. Stoning. But, listen carefully, but to further humiliate the violator, they could publicly expose the corpse. Guess what? Hanging on a tree, as in Deuteronomy 21. Which brings to mind that both Jew and Gentile crucified the suffering servant. You see, they, they, they took Jesus to Rome. They took him to, you know, to the Roman governor. They took him to the ones who could, who could make that decision to crucify Jesus. You know, Pontius Pilate was washing his hands. He wanted to wash his hands of the whole mess. But the Jews were wanting to wash their hands. So you crucify him. But what they did was fulfill Deuteronomy. Whoever hangs on a tree is accursed. But not for himself. But for them. And for us. He was wounded for our transgressions. Our transgressions. The word that describes, uh, that word transgressions de uh, describes our rebelliousness. Our rebellion. It's a Hebrew word, pesha. It's, 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 it's just our rebelliousness. It, it was, in other words, our choice to rebel. You see, when you rebel, it's the choice we make to rebel. Solomon, at the dedication of the temple, prayed this. He said in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 50, he says, And forgive your people who have sinned against you and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you and grant them compassion before those who took them captive that they may have compassion on them. The transgressions were their rebelliousness, you see. So when we see the word transgressions, we're dealing with the choices 
made by people to rebel against the, 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 the law of God, against the Word of God, against God Himself. That's transgressions. Romans 8, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All have transgressed. All have rebelled. And then we're told He was bruised for our iniquities. So He was wounded. He was pierced through because of our rebellion. But He was also bruised for our iniquities. Now, on the cross, Jesus was bruised, which means, uh, the word itself means that He was crushed under the weight of a burden. To be bruised means that you are crushed under the weight of a burden. The Hebrew word for bruised seems to imply both inward and outward pain and anguish. Whereas one activity against the Lord was, was primarily physical, this one included both the inward and the outward pain and anguish. And what was that burden, you see? What was the burden that crushed down upon Jesus? Our iniquities. And you know, when you look at verse 6, and I'm not trying to rush ahead because we're going to come back to it, but at the end of verse 6 it says, And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. So it's not just our transgressions, but our iniquities as well. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity. The Lord has laid on Him the burden, the weight, this, this tremendous crushing weight on Jesus. And that weight is from all of our iniquities. And the word for iniquities literally means perversity, evil, depravity, mischief of our sinful nature. We were all born in sin, by the way. We were all born in sin, the Bible teaches us. And sin in whatever form, whether transgressions, iniquities, or wickedness, or any other words that we can use for, for you know, missing the mark with the Lord. Sin in whatever form is certainly a burden that grows heavier and heavier the longer that we resist God. But the fact of the matter is today, those sins do not crush upon Jesus now because He's already been crushed. He's already been bruised. He's already been wounded. But sin crushes us. The weight of that sin is crushing us. And it was our iniquities that crushed Jesus on the cross. You know, th this is crossing all of time, folks. We can't explain that. God is in a different time continuum because He's eternal. We're, uh, we're on this time continuum which He has given us. One day we will be in, in eternity. Hopefully we'll be in eternity with God uh, before His presence forever and not apart from Him. And that's an important thing to consider tonight. But it was our iniquities that crushed Jesus on the cross. And please understand that transgressions and iniquities very clearly teach us that we're sinners by choice and by nature. We're sinners by choice and by nature. Iniquities, nature. Transgressions, choice. You see, everything's covered here. Every part of our sin is covered at the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And then it says, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. This chastisement mentioned here is the, is the correction inflicted by a parent on a child. It's, this is when it's mostly used, this particular word. Uh, it's the correction inflicted by a parent on a child for their good, for their good, like spanking or timeout. Y'all, anybody do timeout here? Hope you all don't do timeout. You're all adults here. But, uh, you know, you know but maybe sometimes we need some timeout. You know, it's, uh, we can act kind of childish sometimes. And I know that sounds, it sounds somewhat mundane and, and, and even obvious, but, but we need to remember that our sins brought us into a state of war with the God who created us. And this is really the most important aspect of understanding the statement, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Peace. Back in the 60s, you know, we used to flash the two-finger sign, you know. Peace, man, peace. You know, we were going through an ugly war in Vietnam, and, you know, most people, uh, you know, uh, protested against that war. And so, you know, the statements that were made back in the 60s, make love, not war. And so peace, man, we were cool, you know, doing all that. Peace and war. We have to understand that before we came to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we were at war with God. We were at war with God. There's some people today in our midst that are at war with God. There's some people in our families today that are at war with God. They're fighting Him. Problem is, you can't win. So it's better to surrender. He's got all the good weapons. We got nothing if we try to fight him with our own weapons. You know, Paul said the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But you see, what do we try to fight God with? Carnal weapons. The thing that was required to make peace, the chastisement or the punishment for our sins, was put upon Jesus. This is the reason for Paul's statement in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, when he says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Having been justified by faith, we no longer are trusting in ourselves. We're, not lo- we're no longer trusting in flesh. We're no longer trusting in our own ways, our own ways of thinking. We're not trusting in our uh, in our academia. We're not trusting in our in our uh, uh, you know just uh, whatever it is that we think we have. We can't trust in all of that at all. We can't trust in it anymore. When we stop trusting in that and start trusting in the Lord and, and, and trusting that and believing that the Word of God says that Jesus came to die for our sins and we believe that and that He rose again from the dead so that we can say that we are now Christians. We're no longer uh, uh, you know, living in our own self. Now we've given our lives to the Lord. You know, He's given us a new heart, a new mind. You know, so the whole thing about coming to Christ when we've been justified... By faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we ask the Lord for forgiveness and we come to trust that He has forgiven us because of the sacrifice of Jesus for us, we then have peace with God. 
And we can sing a great song. It is finished. The battle is over. It is finished. There will be no more war. It is finished. The end of all conflict. It is finished. And Jesus is Lord. That's when the peace begins. When we surrender. I often wonder sometimes, you know, people will wonder, why is it that we raise our hands in church, you know, worship the Lord? Oh, it's a symbolic thing. We're offering ourselves as a sacrifice unto the Lord. But there's another reason. We give up. We surrender. And Lord, you're master. You're in charge. Hopefully he is. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The punishment for that peace was put on Jesus Christ. And by his stripes, we are healed. By his stripes, these are the marks of a whip across a person's back. Those are the stripes. Countless stripes on Jesus. There's no way to tell how many there were, except for the fact that that the Lord himself knows. But these are the marks of a whip across a person's back. So Isaiah not only prophesied that Jesus would be pierced, but you know that he has prophesied that Jesus would be whipped or scourged as well? A scourging is a whipping? That causes the marks or the stripes. In Matthew 27, verse 26. The stripes. Then he released Barabbas to them because the people were saying, let Barabbas go free, crucify Jesus. They released Barabbas to them and when he scourged Jesus. You see, there there it is. Isaiah had prophesied here in verse 5. Stripes. He delivered him to be crucified. The only way a lawbreaker can be at peace with the law is to suffer the punishment that the law demands. Our Lord Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly, yet he was the one who suffered the scourging that belonged to us. Have you noticed now how that substitution works? Everything that Jesus endured, he endured for us. Therefore, all that he endured for us was meant for us. Because we were the ones deserving of it, because we were the sinners, not him. And so, he was the one who suffered the scourging that belonged to us, and because he did, we not only have peace with God, but the healing that is necessary for salvation. The forgiveness of sins. That is the healing that it's dealing with. If you look contextually at this passage, as well as the passage in Peter that we read earlier, we're going to read it again in just a moment. That is the context. When it says in in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, that was the first time I told you to put your finger in the Bible, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. 
These words, especially in Isaiah 53 verse 5, depict our spiritual healing. Peter writes within the context of spiritual salvation. By his stripes we're healed. I'm not, and again, I'm not trying to downplay the fact that I believe very strongly that Jesus heals today and does heal today. And that there is, to some, there is some sense and understanding that this particular passage is, is, is letting us in on all that the Lord has done for us. Because on the cross, as I said before, every blessing we have is because of the cross. But before we could ever understand what God can do with our bodies, we have to understand that He wants more than anything to do for our spirit is to save us and to cleanse us and forgive us and make us new creatures in Christ because Jesus Christ is the one who took our place. By His stripes, we're healed. Now we understand what it means to have peace with God. Now we can say, Lord, when we can pray for somebody, when we can pray for ourselves and say, Lord, heal me. I know that you can and I know that you will and I know that you desire it. But Lord, not my will, but your will. You do it. You do the work. All I know is whether you heal me in this life or not, I'll I'll say one thing. I'm thankful that I'm healed eternally, spiritually, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we come to the last verse, verse 6, and it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I know that sheep have some good qualities about them. I know that sheep have some good qualities about them. But going astray isn't one of them. That's not a good quality. When a sheep goes astray. You see, when sheep don't have a shepherd... They tend to wander off and eventually will go astray. Wander off, not know where they are. That's, that's kind of the way sheep are, you know. They need a lot of help. Isn't it any wonder that we have a shepherd and we're called sheep? Because it's easy for us, if we're not focused on our shepherd, if we're not keeping our eyes on the shepherd, we'll wander off. We go all over the place. And then when we open our eyes, we wonder, where are we? What am I doing here? How did I get here? Well, you know how you got there. We're a little smarter than sheep. Just a little smarter than sheep. Then again, if a shepherd is nothing more than a hireling, somebody who just does it for gain, as Jesus put it, the sheep are no better off. Because once trouble comes, where do the hirelings go? They go save their own skins. (laughs) Not the sheepskin. So what is needed is the right shepherd. By the way, there's only one good shepherd. There's only one right shepherd. And I want you to consider this statement in Ezekiel's prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. Listen to what he says. He says, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. Speaking of God's people, speaking of Israel. They were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. 
My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth and no one was seeking or searching for them. What a sad picture that is. But the Lord promised that He would send a shepherd for His sheep. And and, and down in the same chapter of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34, verse 23, it says, God says, I will establish one shepherd over them and He shall feed them. My servant David... Remember that Jesus is a descendant of David. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. Remember now, Ezekiel is written way after David, real David, you know, the, the, the king David and the shepherd David was around. I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Well, I'm speaking of Jesus, son of David. And Jesus is that shepherd. Remember in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. I know that in the very mind of Jesus, as he was looking at these people and seeing them as people without a shepherd, it just, you know, being the fact that he was the one who wrote the Word of God because he is the Word of God, that that was what it was on his mind, Ezekiel. They're scattered because there was no shepherd. But God promised a shepherd. And in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. You know, I have to say this. I was watching something, and you know, I mentioned some names a few weeks ago, teaching something. <laughs> I forgot what day it was. <sighs> I have to say that I was hearing John Hagee, and some of you may know him. You may, may like him. He's a pretty fiery preacher and all, San Antonio. But because he is so much involved in, in, in supporting Israel, and we are too, by the way. We support Israel. But uh, he, has a, he has a particular view that, uh, that we don't have to evangelize the Jewish people because God... We'll take care of that. But that goes against Scripture because God said that you know, every, every person, Jew and Gentile, needs to hear the gospel. I mean, there's, there's, you know, we, we have to understand that. And I, and I think he's missed the point there. But because of what, he's, what he believes in that, in that particular realm, he, he's written a book, and, and I, but I, I wouldn't recommend I, I saw the commercial for it, and he says, I'm going to prove to you, you know, that Jesus never claimed to be Messiah. Honestly, he said that. And that was he said. He said that we saw it. We saw the video. Jesus never claimed to be Messiah because what he's trying to do is promote that particular viewpoint of how the Lord. We don't have to evangelize Jews. It burdened my heart because this very statement is exactly saying that he claims to be Messiah. I could sit here and you know, all night. I could just go ahead and tell you. And what did Jesus say? I am the Father of one. What did Jesus say? Before Abraham was, I am. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? How can you say that he never claimed to be Messiah? This very statement when he says, I am the good shepherd, who can be the shepherd but Messiah? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Who gives his life for the sheep? Messiah comes. Why? Isaiah 53 tells us. So please, please listen to what people say on TV. 
And I, I believe he's a brother in Christ. I mean, I, you know, I, I can't, you know, I just have to tell you, man, that, he's wrong there. Under the law of Moses, let me go on and finish here. Under the law of Moses, the sheep died for the shepherd. Listen, under the law of Moses, the sheep died for the shepherd, but under grace, the good shepherd died for the sheep. And if we go on in John 10, verse 14, it says, I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I'm known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Gentile sheep, by the way, folks. This is not Mormons. Please understand. This is what the Mormon church says. This, is the other, this leads them to lead you to the other gospel. I'm sorry, this is not what that is. Jesus says, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. He's just speaking of Gentiles. The context of all the Bible is there's Jews and there's Gentiles. That's it. And them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and they will be one flock and one shepherd. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to his own way. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. This was our life before we came to know the, 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 the love and the mercy and grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. If, if you look at verse 6 of Isaiah 53, you see one very important thing. The, the, the verse begins with the word all, and the verse ends with the word all. You all see that? All, we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Begins with all, it ends with all. I want, I want to mention uh, something that um, Dr. H.A. Ironside summed up, how he, how he summed up this verse 6. He said this, he says, here we have the entire story of the Bible epitomized. Verse 6, here we have the entire story of the Bible epitomized. Man's ruined both by nature and practice and God's marvelous and all-sufficient remedy. The verse begins with all and ends with all. The first all is the acknowledgement of our need. All we like sheep have gone astray. The second shows how fully that need has been met in the cross of Christ. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The cross upon which Jesus died was not the end of the story. We leave his humiliation and we begin to see his exaltation. First in his burial and then in his resurrection. And so let us remember something. Let us remember this. The innocent, the truly innocent. By the way, you know, you can go to court today and sometimes people say, well, you know, he's innocent. The Bible teaches there's none innocent. All have sinned. That means we're all guilty. So in this world, none is innocent. So understand the statement when I say, the innocent was punished as if guilty, that the guilty might be rewarded as if innocent. That is justification by faith. That is coming to God and Christ by faith through grace. 
And that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works. Lest anyone should boast. So let me leave you with these words from Paul's letter to the Romans in Romans 3.21. And following he says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, which means an atoning sacrifice, by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Justified freely by faith. You are justified by faith alone. But now let your faith have its works. Let your faith Give evidence of Christ's life in you. And I hope and pray that in these three verses that we've learned a lot, not only about ourselves, but most importantly about what Jesus Christ has already come to do. Already. It's not what we're waiting for. The Jewish people may be one day seeing him whom they pierce, but we've already received the benefit. Salvation through Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, is our life reflecting that salvation? Let's pray.